Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to the markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Samzell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Looking for answers about those flying somethings we're shooting down, about where the economy is headed, and about when we will bump up against that debt ceiling. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard about whether all that good news about the economy is really all that good. The risk is that we're going to hit the brakes very, very hard. Famed retailer Mickey Drexler about the challenges facing stores today. I don't think are calm at all, not even close. And Jillian Tett of the Financial Times on why we should be paying a lot more attention to the world's other central banks. Actually, what's happening at other central banks outside the Fed matters enormously. It was a mixed, even confusing week for Global Wall Street, starting with all those unidentified high-altitude objects we've been shooting down, with the NSC's Admiral Kirby insisting the U.S. is just erring on the side of caution. Even though we had no indications that any of these three objects were surveilling, we couldn't rule that out. And so there, you know, you want to err on the side of safety here in terms of protecting our national security interests. While the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson insisted that we were overreacting. 
China firmly opposes this and will take countermeasures in accordance with the law against the relevant U.S. entities that undermine China's sovereignty and security and resolutely safeguard national sovereignty and legitimate rights and interests. And we didn't get much more clarity from the economic numbers this week, with the consumer price index showing inflation coming down, but not as fast as we thought, and high retail sales numbers pointing to continued consumer strength despite the higher interest rates, which led people like Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin to take both sides of the trade on additional rate hikes. We may or may not uh, choose to take rates up further if inflation continues to persist, but we'll have to see what happens. The White House got new economic leadership when Brian Deese turned over the reins at the National Economic Council and Leonard Brainerd came over from the Fed to take those reins, something Deese says she's well prepared to handle. Just brings this breadth of expertise and context, having not only been at the front and center of these uh, macroeconomic debates, but also having worked at Treasury and at the NEC. And over it all hangs the threat of default as we approach that debt ceiling sometime in the next few months, though the exact date is far from certain. The urgent thing is when is the so-called X date, the deadline for a, a debt limit deal? The official word from the CBO is that deadline is going to be sometime between July and September. What did the markets make of all the confusion this week? Well, the S&P 500 started the week optimistic, but lost the optimism by Friday, and ended up down three-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq also got a bit gloomier as the week went on, but didn't lose all of its momentum, eking out a gain of six-tenths of a percent. And the bond market either reflected or caused what was going on elsewhere, adding eight basis points to the yield on the 10-year. To help us sort it all out right now, we welcome now Mona Mahajan. She is Senior Investment Strategist at Edward Jones and Rebecca Patterson, until recently, Chief Investment Strategist at Bridgewater. So thank you both for being back with us. Mona, let me start with you. What do you think the market's made of all the conflicting information this week? Yeah, thanks, David. Look, it was almost like a tale of two markets, at least for the first half of the week. Uh, certainly when we got both the CPI and PPI data, as you noted, yes, it did come down from the prior month, but it also remains pretty elevated. Inflation is sticky across the board, uh, both headline and core inflation, probably not coming down as much as investors would have liked to see. But, you know, Equity markets actually took this somewhat with a grain of salt. In fact, maybe focusing a little bit more on that better retail sales number. Jobless claims still were very low this week. But bond markets, on the other hand, they had been pricing in this hotter than expected inflation um, pretty much all week. We saw yields move up. The 10-year and the two-year were higher this week, almost you know between 10 and 15 basis points. So a pretty substantial move in one week. And of course, we saw Fed funds futures, so market expectations of Fed rate hikes, those started to creep higher as well. So prior to Tuesday's inflation reading, a lot of market participants thought maybe two 25 basis point rate hikes um, in the March and May meetings. Now we are seeing an increased probability of a third rate hike in June of 25 basis points as well. That would bring us to a terminal rate of about five and a half percent. So clearly bond markets are starting to price in a Fed that could be higher for longer for some time. Equity markets by the end of the week, they started to catch on as well. Perhaps uh, that message was reinforced by some of the Fed speakers we heard on Thursday afternoon. We even indicated a 50 basis point rate hike maybe 
be still on the table. Uh, but net-net, we'd say after a pretty good start to the year, um, both equity and bond markets may start to see a bit more volatility as we see inflation stickier, a Fed not done, and of course, an economy that's trying to get through it all. Okay, Rebecca, what do you say? I mean, where are we on the terminal rate? How much of what we're seeing in equities is really driven by the discounting of the value of future earnings? Yeah, so I think the rise in the discount rate, um, discounted cash flows, definitely part of the drag on stocks later in the week this week. Both the data, the hot economy, plus the very explicit language from the Fed speakers that it is going to be higher for longer. That was a big part of it. And then if the Fed is really going to get to its goal, 2% inflation, it's going to need to cool down the economy enough to reduce that wage inflation, which means we're also going to be looking at softer earnings ahead. So I think you're going to get one or the other or a combination of both in the months ahead, and that is the downside risk for stocks. Rebecca, I'm, I'm curious, what do you make of this talk on part of Wall Street that there may be no landing, not hard, not soft, that we may actually just tolerate a higher level of inflation for longer and not try to get all the way down? What do you make of that? Is there any plausibility to that? Uh, I, almost zero in my mind. I mean, the, the idea that the Fed is going to tolerate inflation being significantly higher than target for a prolonged period, putting its own credibility at risk, makes zero sense to me. I think the Fed is going to keep tightening until it's confident that inflation is going to get to target. But even more importantly, the market's still pricing in rate cuts in 2024 and beyond. And the Fed is not going to be looking at that until inflation is below target and or the economy has cooled to a degree that the unemployment rate is significantly higher. For those things to happen, you're going to have a lot of economic slowdown, which obviously is going to feed through into earnings. So are are we close to economic slowdown, Mona? Yeah, you know, look, with an unemployment rate at 3.4%, that's a multi-decade low. Uh, and a recession or even an economic downturn is clearly not imminent. But keep in mind, the labor market historically has been a lagging indicator. And in fact, when you look at some of the leading indicators of the economy, uh, whether it's what we got this morning, conference board leading economic indicators, which were negative for the sixth month in a row, or if you look at that yield curve, which has been inverted since mid-July, um, even things like ISM on the manufacturing side clearly, but even services trending lower, those are more leading indicators of the economy. And of course, the big one, if the Fed is going to continue two to three more rate hikes, that all has a lag impact um, on economic growth. And so, yes, the labor market in January uh, gained 500,000 plus jobs. But the question you have to ask yourself is, will that pace of gains uh, be maintained? Can it be maintained over the next, you know, call it six to 12 months? In our view, we're probably going to get a softening both in the unemployment rate um, and those job gains. But importantly for the Fed, we'll probably also see a softening in wage growth as well. That's really where they are looking to for inflation to come down, that non-housing services inflation they've been referencing for the last few months now. Um, They're waiting for wage gains to soften, uh, and they'll continue until they see that likely. And if I can just jump in, Mona, when I look at um, what what are we going to see in the labor markets? One area that I think gets overlooked a bit is the small business segment. You know, the tech sector, big headlines, but it's 2% of the labor force. Service sector, and a lot of those are small businesses. If you just take hospitality and healthcare, just those two, 26% of the labor force. And the small businesses and the service sector businesses say they still can't get enough workers. So I think the, the wage pressure is there for the short term, although I agree with you, medium term, I think we will see some deflation. The other thing that I'm watching really carefully is household debt. And one thing that came out this week from the Federal Reserve was a report on 
Q4, fourth quarter household debt, we had the biggest nominal increase in 20 years. That's both mortgages and credit cards. And credit cards to me is the wily coyote moment. Um, right now, investors have run down their savings. They're still spending. They're supporting those retail sales by using credit. But that credit debt is quickly rising. Uh, and at some point, the rates plus the reduction in incomes as jobs start to dissipate a little bit, that's going to cause us to fall off the cliff or, or maybe I should say blow up the balloon. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a great point. And look, the consumer drives the economy and those credit card numbers are ones to watch because yes, we've had an excess of savings coming out of the pandemic, but we're seeing that slowly being drawn down. And of course, the next shoe to drop will be, can consumers pay off these credit card bills that they're accumulating? Also keep in mind, and this is just anecdotal, but the tech layoffs we've been seeing, look, technology is a small part of the overall labor economy, but a lot of those have not flown through yet into jobless claims because of course there are severance packages, there's a delay in when you actually file the claims, et cetera. So we may start seeing somewhat of a pickup even from the layoff announcements we've seen thus far. Ramona Mahajan and Rebecca Patterson will be staying with us as we consider what we may have missed or at least not paid enough attention to over the course of a busy week. That's next on Wall Street Beat on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Those fickle friends in Japan dealt a blow to the heart of the U.S. bond market. When the Bank of Japan's announcement that it wouldn't be buying more of its own country's bonds, and thereby prompting lower rates worldwide, panicked U.S. bond buyers and led to what has become the worst two-week sell-off in the Treasury market in three and a half years. Long-term rates here have risen from 5.03% to 5.43%, the highest since August, 
in just a fortnight. That was Louis Rukeyser on Wall Street Week back in February of 1999, a time like now when we were paying attention to tightening monetary policy in Japan and a rising rate environment in the United States. Back then, the number one movie was the action thriller Payback, starring Mel Gibson. And the number one song was Angel of Mine by Monica. Mona Mahajan and Rebecca Patterson are so with us. So, Rebecca, I won't ask you to sing Mo- uh, <laughs> Angel of Mine. <laughs> Angel Thank you. Mine. That's okay. good for everyone. But, but uh, it was a packed week. <clears throat> yeah. What did you see this week that maybe we didn't pay enough attention to? Well, I think U.S. debt is front and center for investors. Everyone knows that we have a debt ceiling coming and probably a showdown, hopefully not as bad or not worse than 2011 when equities fell about 20% in the weeks following. But I think the thing that some investors might be missing or underestimating, the Congressional Budget Office's report also talked about the debt outlook now that we're in a slightly higher interest rate environment and we continue to load on debt with some of the provisions we made, reasonably so, probably, during COVID. We needed to do something. We could argue how much. But when you look at the CBO's report, if we extend existing tax and spending provisions, we're going to have debt to GDP in 10 years of a 130%. So you mentioned Japan earlier in the segment. Yep, we're looking at that kind of stuff. The other one that struck me is that the interest payments on our debt are going to increasingly have a crowding out effect. Uh, And if you look just at the next five years, the CBO's estimates, it would suggest that our interest rate payments on our debt will be greater than defense spending altogether. (laughs) That's scary, and it's going to mean that government, which is already very polarized, will have to make some very difficult fiscal trade-offs, and it's already challenging, and it's going to get worse. That's not good news necessarily. How about you, Mona? Is there anything you actually noticed this week you think we're not at least paying enough attention to? Yeah, and by the way, that debt ceiling one is a great one. It'll probably start flaring up again come July or August of this year. Um, But yeah, another one that we've been paying uh, attention to closely, David, is the earnings outlook. And, you know, keep in mind, we're in the middle of Q4 earnings right now. Um, They're trending towards a negative 5% growth rate. But in fact, when you look at Q1 and Q2 earnings forecasts now, they have come down quite a bit. So we're looking at negative 5% and negative 3% respectively. So that brings us to 3 back-to-back quarters of negative earnings growth in the S&P 500. So, of course, you know, while we may not be seeing that technical negative GDP growth, we are looking at a potential earnings slump ahead of us. And so it'll be interesting to see and, and probably not as likely for markets to be able to power right through that. But perhaps something that investors have not yet um, seen or, or been thinking about hasn't yet come quite to the forefront in the headlines either. Uh, the other interesting part of the earnings story, of course, is 2023 broadly earnings Uh, expectations have come down. They were about 10% plus coming into the year, and they're now closer to 2%, but perhaps a little bit more downside to go in those downward earning revisions as well. So until that kind of bottoming process in earnings happens, um, it will be difficult to stage a more sustainable recovery. So I do think uh, that's something to keep in mind, especially looking at Q4, which is still looking a little elevated in our view. Um, But, you know, I think the earnings picture in the next couple quarters, uh, it will be a little bit of a tough one. And I think 
think if I could pick up, Mona, on something you said, a sustainable move. I think that is going to be the key for this year. Last year, we had some pretty long-lasting trends. I think this year is going to be like a ping-pong or a pickleball match uh, where it's just going back and forth. You'll get some data that suggests this immaculate disinflation, and then the next month we'll have something hotter than expected. And the changes in expectations for liquidity, the changes in expectations in earnings is going to keep us back and forth. And I think for investors, we don't want to take our eye off the ball at the longer-term trend. And, and I agree with you. I think the risk is that we could get an earnings recession even within the volatility along the way. Sounds like a yeah. lot of volatility coming up. Yeah. Thank you so much to Mona Mahajan and Rebecca Patterson for joining us on this edition of Wall Street Week. Welcome back now, somebody who regularly contributes to Wall Street Week. She's Jillian Tad. We know her as head of the editorial board and editor at large for the Financial Times, but now she's about to add a new title, which is Provost of King's College, Cambridge. That comes, I guess, with the new term in October. Congratulations. Thank you very much indeed. It's been like going to Hogwarts for, econo- for academics, but or economists, because John Maynard Keynes, of course, came from King's College. So very excited. Oh, an honorable tradition you're following. So, so Jillian, we're watching the markets all the time, of course, to see particularly how the equity markets are reacting to what they think the Fed's going to do. We had pretty robust economic numbers in the United States uh, this week. But at the same time, we aren't focused quite as much on the quantitative tightening part. There's a lot of concern about liquidity. You have some interesting thoughts on liquidity. Well, there's two points I want to make. Firstly, that people in the markets are unsurprisingly very obsessed with what the Fed is doing. Every time Jay Powell coughs, um, investors go mad. And they're also very, very focused on the American data on inflation and growth, which again is totally understandable. But if you look more broadly right now, there's potentially two things they're missing. One is the fact that actually what's happening at other central banks outside the Fed matters enormously. Because quite apart from what the ECB is doing, you've got the People's Bank of China, which has been engaged in the recent months on something of a massive support program, and you've got the Bank of Japan that's about to get a new governor, which still appears to be taking a very dovish stance. And that is effectively putting more liquidity into the markets. In fact, I was looking at some great research from Matt King at City earlier today, which says that if you look at the PBOC and the BOJ, together they've added almost a trillion dollars of liquidity to the markets since last October. And the reason that matters is that I'm one of those people who believes that what's happening to asset prices is not driven just by the latest data on CPI, but liquidity and how much money is swirling around the system. Julian, let me add one other potential complication, and that's the debt ceiling crisis. It's probably not too strong a word to say crisis looming in the United States you know so well. There's been a lot of concern about what the Fed might be doing with liquidity here because the the debt crisis really comes on us this summer. We're going to have some challenges. How does that play against the liquidity issue? Well, that's a critical issue, and in fact, I wrote a column about that recently, pointing out that there's never a great moment to have a debt crisis. But it's a particularly bad moment when you are embarked on this astonishing monetary policy experiment called quantitative tightening or attempted quantitative tightening because the scale of what the Fed is trying to do in terms of shrinking the balance sheet, leaving aside the issue of what the Bank Bank of Japan is doing, the scale of what the Fed is doing is really very significant. And one of the things that concerns me is that we know the Treasury's market is actually quite fragile in terms of its underlying structure. Um, the reason's a bit complex and too complex to go into, but it's to do with the fact that you don't really have market makers in the system anymore, keeping markets stable in a crunch. 
We saw what that means in March 2020 during the early days of COVID when the Treasury markets came really close to seizing up completely. We've had other mini flash crashes and worrying periods as well. And if we have a debt ceiling crisis coupled with the fact that essentially the Fed is trying to stop buying government bonds and we don't yet know who's going to buy them instead, you've got the makings of, if not a new crisis, then certainly a lot of risks. Thank you so much to Jillian Ted of the Financial Times. And come October, she's going to be provost of King's College, Cambridge. Coming up, we'll wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures high-yield-account. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David West. We welcome back now our very special contributor here. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, it was quite a week this week for economic numbers. Certainly in the United States, we had the CPI numbers. We had the PPI numbers. We also had retail sales numbers. And what I took away from it is, you know what? We're not close to a recession, that's for sure. On the other hand, that inflation is not coming down very fast. Do we need to rethink exactly what we're doing as we try to approach inflation? David, here's how I think about it. The Fed's been trying to put the brakes on, and it doesn't look like the brakes are getting much traction. And when your brakes don't get much traction, two things happen. You can be moving too fast, that's the inflation pressure, and you can be setting yourself up for some kind of uh, collision or crash down the road. And both of those things, I think, are real risks Uh, in uh, this environment. We clearly have an economy where demand is super strong, the highest ratio of vacancies to unemployment we've ever seen, retail sales 
on fire, the economy creating jobs faster right now than population growth by a factor of five in the latest month. If you look at the broadest measures of inflation, the median inflation component at its highest rate in uh, 40 years, running close to 7%, uh, percent, a general broadening of uh, price pressures. So that has got to cause real concern about inflation. It's got to at least raise a question about the paradigm market observers have had of how many 25 basis point increases before the long pause and move towards decrease. It raises the possibility that we're not landing at a terminal rate sometime in the next several months or that we're going to have to go back to hitting the brakes uh, harder by more than 25 basis points. At the same time, the Fed has to be very careful. I don't think those who think inflation is slowing, therefore it's obvious that we've got to hit the brakes very hard, necessarily are right because if you look at accumulations of inventories, if you look at what's happened to the savings rate, if you look at how many firms have built up their payrolls, if you look at signs of a bit of euphoria coming back into some stock markets, you also have the possibility of that Wiley Coyote moment that I've been referring to that could come, not next month, but could come sometime in the next uh, few months. So, so Larry, uh, to oversimplify this, let me give you a multiple choice quiz here. With the Fed in March, 50 basis points rather than 25, or stick at 25 and add another 25 or two down the road, or do we just not know? I think we don't know. Uh, the case for moving slowly is that when you move slowly, you preserve the option not to do the last move. Once you're sure that a move is necessary, I don't think there's any great advantage to uh, delaying uh, that move. And so that's why I think there are more possibilities uh, open at uh, this point. Right. But I think the risk is that we're going to hit the brakes very, very hard. And then when we hit the brakes very, very hard, that's going to kick in at the same time that some of those negative cyclical dynamics about rising savings and excess inventory and so forth are kicking in. And that could produce uh, the the dangerous uh, drop-off. So let's go from the Fed to the fiscal side. From the monetary to the fiscal side, we had a CBO report out that said actually the debt situation is worse than we thought as we are now confronting a debt ceiling deadline sometime this summer. We're not sure exactly when it is. How bad is the problem and what do you look at as a macroeconomist to figure out how bad the problem is? Because one of the issues is the more we have to service the debt, the less money we have to spend on other things that might be investments in the economy. Look, I, I think that CBO report is uh, concerning. And while there are lots of puts and takes, my guess is that the ultimate debt trajectory may well run higher than CBO is saying. 
It assumes that Fed funds is going to settle for the long term at two and a half without there being a recession. That strikes me as having much more room to be too low than to be uh, too high. CBO does its job, which is predict current policy. But my guess is that spending in the national security area is going to have to rise significantly over the next decade, given the threats uh, that we are uh, facing. CBO does its job and assumes current law, which is that all the tax cuts legislated in uh, 2017 are going to phase out in 2025. But I'd be surprised if that was actually uh, true. And so you add all that up, and I think that where they're looking for debt-to-GDP ratios to go to 120% of uh, debt, an increase of about 20% over a decade, my suspicion is it could easily be 30% over a decade. And that, in turn, will push, put pressure on interest rates, which will put pressure on uh, the uh, increase the deficit. And so you get a little bit of a, a vicious uh, cycle. I don't think this is an imminent emergency. I don't think it's something that will be any kind of crisis if it is not dealt with uh, this uh, year. I think those who somehow use fiscal concern as an excuse to not raise the debt limit are exacerbating all of the uh, fiscal risks. But I do think we've uh, got to recognize uh, that unless uh, interest rates really revert to very low levels, which is certainly possible, it is what happened in the era of uh, secular stagnation, that I think we are going to have fiscal problems and fiscal challenges that we are going to have to address. Uh, finally, Larry, next week, the G20 finance ministers and central bankers will be meeting over in India. They've got a fair amount to address here, some of which you've raised on Wall Street before. For example, some of the debt relief that needs to be given to some of the poorest countries on the world, and also what uh, we're going to do with climate finance for some of those poorest countries. What are you looking for in the G20 meetings? I hope that we're going to see uh, continued uh, good work along the lines of uh, very powerful calls that Janet Yellen has made for uh, World Bank uh, reform. I hope we're going to see some progress on uh, the debt issues. I think there's a need for careful thinking about funding the ongoing economic challenges and the ultimate reconstruction in Ukraine. And I think this issue of a global economy where there's uh, substantial inflationary pressure and the breaks are having very uneven effects and how that's going to play out is going to be an important area that the ministers and the governors are going to have to uh, discuss. We haven't talked about it on the show, David, but there's been a 
kind of possible Enron moment uh, in India. And I imagine with uh, India emerging as the world's largest country and uh, the meeting taking place uh, in India, there's going to be a lot of curiosity from all present about how that's going to play through and what, if any, larger systemic implications that's going to have for India. Really interesting point. Thank you so much, Larry Summers of Harvard, our special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Coming up, sometimes it's hardest to see what's right in front of us. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Finally, one more thought. The case of the purloined letter, or spy balloon, or crypto scheme. In 1844, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a mystery about finding an incriminating letter where no one thought to look, right in plain sight. It turns out that things really haven't changed all that much in the last 179 years. Consider, most recently, the strange case of the Chinese spy balloon. We were shocked, shocked, when the good people of Montana looked up to see a balloon the size of three school buses hovering 60,000 feet above their heads. And I have no idea what it is. After much consideration and a leisurely trip across the country, an F-22 Raptor shot it down just off the coast of South Carolina. My God, they shot it down. Leaving behind some debris and a lot of debate about what it was, what it was doing, and how long this sort of thing had been going on. Many people, intentionally or otherwise, have been given the impression that a couple of weeks ago our skies were clear, and then all of a sudden we have spy balloons and other identified, unidentified flying objects raining down on us like confetti. That is not accurate. But it turns out that it shouldn't have been such a mystery. According to the New York Times, a Chinese aeronautics scientist, Wu Ji, had told a state-run news outlet back in 2019 about his new high-altitude balloon, which he said could be used for, you guessed it, surveillance. And he conveniently included a video showing its track across North America, exclaiming, look, there's America, all hiding in plain sight on the internet for the last four years which only adds to a long list of things that we should have seen coming. Like, for example, Bernie Madoff, not being entirely on the up and up after he'd reported above market gains for his investors year after year after year with nary a loss along the way. All of the victims clapped as soon as they heard the sentencing from Judge Jenny Chin. Bernard Madoff will go to prison for more than the rest of his life. He is 71 years old and he was sentenced to the maximum 150 years in prison. Or the possibility that anything could go wrong in giving some $2 billion to a 30-year-old Samuel Bankman-Fried to set up a crypto empire. This is a big moment in history, one of the biggest fraud cases in American history. Or the very idea that the Russians would actually invade Ukraine a year ago, despite the fact that President Putin had said he would do just that and had massed thousands of troops all along the border for just that very purpose. We're working to pursue diplomacy in every possible venue, but we also know that diplomacy will not succeed in an atmosphere of threat and military escalation. So it's not just in Casablanca that we're surprised by what we should have known all along. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. 
That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.